Well, we have. We've been we've been traveling through this letter called Colossians. Uh, it's a letter that's written by the Apostle Paul while he was in prison in Rome, and he's writing this letter to a church in in Colossae that's probably maybe ten years old, about the same amount of time that I've been here with you guys. And it's a it's a church that Paul has never had anything to do with. He doesn't know the people there. He's never met the people personally. And the only connection that he has with this church is the relationship that he has with this lad who planted it, Epaphras. And the relationship that they have is based on the gospel that Paul received from the risen Lord Jesus. And you can read about uh, that, about that in Paul's life in Acts 9 and Acts 22. And then, and then so Jesus gives Paul this story about who he is uh, it's pretty obvious because he's alive and he's raised from the dead and Paul's like whoops and then and then puts that in his life and then Paul shares that gospel message uh, sows it into the life of Epaphras who then goes back to Colossae and and begins to share it with them this gospel message and and all of a sudden it's transforming them and we know that this gospel message has a particular content about it and that content is the news about Jesus the news that Jesus gave to Paul the news that Paul gave to Epaphras and Paul has been reminding the Colossians of the content uh, of the gospel in these first two chapters that we've we've seen reminding them of who Jesus is and what he has done and what he is still doing on their behalf and in their lives namely that Jesus, who is the invisible God made visible, who created all things and holds all things together, the universe, the cosmos, you and I, has in an act of inseparable operation, and that's an important sentence, in an act of inseparable operation and unity of purpose, so with the Father and with the Holy Spirit working together, they, they have come and they, in Christ, have dealt with the sin that is in the human condition. So it wasn't that the Godhead was just sitting around one day sort of problem solving, shooting a few ideas about how to deal with sin that humanity had set loose uh, in God's good creation and they're just like, oh, we don't know what to do. So when Jesus wasn't looking, they just pushed him out of heaven and said, well, you, you go and deal with that. Now, as Peter points out in his sermon at the beginning of Acts in Acts 2, that Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God, who's running the show, raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep him like it had no claim over this perfect man peter reaffirms this in his letter to the christian church later on in church around turkey or these kind of areas in 1 peter 1 he says he jesus was chosen from before the creation of the world but was revealed in the last times for your sake who through him are all believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope could be in God like this is a this is not a response to oh my goodness what will we do this is God's plan God sent Jesus into human history to redeem and to transfer sinners, people who were once alienated from God, who lived in hostility to God, whether they acknowledge that or, or not, whether they feel they do or they don't. The human heart is at war with God. 
and you transfer them into a new reality of eternal life that, that Paul begins to describe in phrases like the kingdom of God's beloved son. A place where Jesus is recognized as Lord and Savior by those who exist there, by those who have been transferred into it. And Paul says, this has all come about. How has this all come about? This has all come about because Jesus has made peace. This hostility, this war, Jesus has made peace. How? By the blood of the cross. That is to say that Jesus on the cross took the wrath of God that is towards sin and satisfied its demands. Jesus bore in his flesh, Paul says, in his humanity, the wrath of God towards sin, while at the same time transferring his qualifications of his perfect relationship with God to those who put their faith in the wrath satisfier, the sin bearer. That in him now we might receive this, this new identity, this new standing and relationship with God, whereby in Christ we have been justified, given the qualifications of forgiven. The record of our debt cancelled through the work of the cross is another way Paul describes it. As though we've been raised from death to life and into a different kind of life, a life of faith, of love and of hope. A life reorganized and reprioritized around Jesus. And this is just some of the content that, that, that Paul has been discussing, uh, the content of the gospel that Paul's been discussing in the opening two chapters. And, and the reason why he's been discussing this is because he's heard from Epaphras, who's just having some jail food with him in his cell at the moment. There's an emerging conversation uh, back in Colossae based on some ideas and some philosophies that challenge this, that challenge the sufficiency of Jesus to achieve all of this on our behalf, this justification, this new life this acceptance and blessing with God but there's some people who are saying hmm maybe Jesus needs a little more something added in or, or maybe there's some secret things we don't know about this stuff's floating around and Paul is making it obvious that any teaching and content that drifts from Jesus that gets distracted from Jesus ultimately gets dissatisfied with this and we looked at all that last week is an expression of uh, self-made man-made religion not the gospel from Jesus, about Jesus. Rather, it is empty philosophies and hollow ideas. And here's the, here's the thing, with no real power or no real strength to actually change your life on your behalf and hold you there and keep you there until it's finished and, and you, as, this, as it says there, and you appear in Christ with the same kind of glory. Like, no power to do that. And today... We come to a shift in Paul's letter from the lofty descriptions of who Jesus is for a believer to, to how Jesus is in the life of a believer. Uh, it, it's a movement from Paul talking about the, the, these, this, this event of justification, what has been done on behalf of the believer, to now more and more moving into the to life of sanctification, what God and in Jesus is continuing to do in the believer with a view to how when Christ returns, this will, this will all be a completed work. All the threads of transformation that are, that are being sewn in, woven into our lives will be a full garment that has no patches, that has no imperfections. It will be a thing of 
glory. C.S. Lewis has got this great quote about what it's going to be like in um, his book, The Way to Glory, but I, I don't have enough time to quote it, but look, look it up or come and talk to me about it. But basically, actually, let's, let's do it. Basically, he says, um, you know, if you could see who you are uh, when in your resurrected life, then you'd be very tempted to worship that creature. Like that's the glory, that's what's coming. At the moment now, it's hidden in a way, hidden. We, our lives that are hidden in Christ are not what they're, they're being made. They're, they're, we know, we feel it, we know we're on the way. But man, when it's done, won't it be wonderful? That's not all of it, there's more in there. But yeah, Paul begins to describe, if you like now, he's moving into describing what the impact should, we should see. Uh, what impact we should see taking place in someone who claims to have a relationship with Jesus, where Jesus is now just slowly at work replacing the old ways of death in our lives with new ways of life. And, and, and um, no doubt because of the fact that uh, the Colossian church was in Colossae, and that was a town that was built on a textile industry uh, they, they made this uh, rich, dark red cloth out of wool uh, that was called Colossinum, Colossinum, which, you know, the, the PR people were just, there's a lot of work going on there, isn't there? How original. Um, Paul, Paul uses clothing metaphors and clothing language to, to now convey to the, the Colossians what this work looks like, how one should now live in Christ. He, And so as we start this new section, here's what's going on. Paul is addressing Christians. That's who he's talking to. He's not talking to non-Christians at all. He is talking to Christians now. So, so, so if you don't know Christ the way Paul has described, this, some of this language is going to sound foreign. It's going to like, what on earth are you talking about? I caught up uh, with someone last Thursday, I think it was, and, and, and they just wanted to know. They were, they, were, uh, they were like, the world's messed up. It's evil. And if there's evil in the world, then there must be good. Uh, that means there must be a God. And they wanted to come and they just randomly wanted to talk to me about that. And, and, but one of the things that they were like was, I, as I began to talk about the life in Christ, it, it was just like, I have no idea what that's like. I have no idea what you're talking about. I could never serve God. That's because they have literally no idea. It's foreign to them. Their hearts are not set on the affection. So that's what's going on here. Now Paul is talking to people who he describes as being raised with Christ. It's very specific. Paul starts this new section with an overarching identity statement about believers and who they are in Christ. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then also you will appear with him in glory. That kind of sounds pretty cool. Well, what we first notice is that Paul uh, puts our being raised with Christ in front of our dying with Christ, and he's reversing the order there. But all he's trying to do is emphasize our new status of believers, that we are raised, that we are alive, and that this new status of being raised with Christ now requires a new way of life. And if that status of raised with Christ could be put into a word, and I've already used it, or into another word, that word is justified. 
you are now in right relationship with God, no longer defined by sin, no longer defined by death, but by Christ, by new life. To be raised with Christ means that, that in Jesus your sin has been dealt with. You are, as Paul said in the first chapter in verse 13, though once being dead in your sins, you are made alive in Christ. He's kind of going back over some old ground here. Having, having forgiven us our sins, having cancelled the charge of the legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us, Jesus has taken it away and he has nailed it to the cross and he has dealt with it and now we are alive in Christ. It means that you have, from God's perspective, uh, to, to your spiritual condition, which your spiritual condition will determine your eternal physical condition, you have died to the power of sin through the power of Christ's work on the cross. And now, and now your life is hidden. It's clothed. It's cloaked in him. It's shaped by him. It's a present reality. It's not something that you've got to wait for. It's happening now. It's not something that you will only get when you get to heaven. This is now. But it is also a fixed future reality. It's, it's fixed in, and that's why Paul describes it as being in the heavens. This promise is locked. It's secure. Because that is where Jesus is. He's raised. He's in the heavens. Your life is in him. And that's where he exercises his rule and reign. And thus... This is unchangeable. It can't, it can't be taken away from you. You cannot lose this. And that is a great hope that shapes how you now live. Knowing that you can't lose it should shape how you now live with, with this crazy promise of it's going to be fulfilled and you, it's, it's going to be glorious. That your life is hidden in Christ means that he is the one doing the work, not you. The basis of your forgiveness, the basis of your transformation, your acceptance with God, this, this justified position before God is fixed in Christ. It's an unchangeable position to be raised with Christ. Now, people who get this, people who understand this, who encounter this, what it does is is it empowers the Christian life not to be drowned in shame like when we, like when we f maybe fail or we slip up or we do something, if you're like me, uh, you know, constantly doing something dumb, saying some cruel thing to your wife or, or some stupid thing that could normally drown me in shame. Like, why did I say that? This is the woman I love, you know, that kind of thing. But if we understand that we are raised in Christ, then rather than living in the shame of that moment, we run toward God. We, we, we head back toward God because we know that God restores failures. He moved towards the failure in the first place. Like you could not be more junked up, messed up than when God found you and saved you and raised you. So why would that change now that you are in him? Like why would that change? It wouldn't. People who understand this run toward Christ, not away, and they deepen intimacy rather than duty. When God looks at you, he does not act toward you on the basis of your sin past, your sin present, or your sin future. God acts towards you on the basis of your life hidden in Christ. He couldn't love you any more or any less. God sees the finished work of justification of the cross and he sees the ongoing work of sanctification that is fixed in your life, the work of the Spirit in your life that Paul describes in this little um, 
passage as, as the exchanging of, of clothes, of your clothing. The description of what you are becoming more and more in Christ. Something that is a certainty, something that you experience now, but will feel the full weight of its glory when Christ returns, when he, when he comes back. Everyone will get to see, ah, oh, that's what was going on. That makes a lot of sense now. That's what was going on in that, in that person's life. It's, a, it's, it's, it's the, one of the grandest promises. Paul reminds or redirects the Colossians and by extension you and I that if we are to live the life that Jesus is working in us, then our hearts and our minds must seek or be set on him. Uh, he says on things above, not so our hearts have got to be set on things above, not on uh, things below, not on good things below. Or, or on our circumstances or on our environments that we encounter. If our hearts are set there, then we tend to drift. Then we te- tend to get distracted and ultimately we get dissatisfied uh, with Jesus because we're no longer looking at him. And, and then we're like, oh man, this faith, I don't know. But our hearts are no longer looking at Jesus. They're looking at things that are never going to satisfy Paul describes this life as requiring us to be mindful that Jesus is not dead, not absent, not uninterested, but is currently and continuously holding all things together from his seat next to the Father in heaven. And now that's to where our hearts are to go. Paul is saying Christians are to continue their relationship with Christ. They are to seek him out. Jesus should be the goal of your heart he should be the highest affection of your heart that's what paul is saying here so he's saying go after jesus with your heart that should be the priority marriage should not be the priority it's good it needs to be a priority but not the ultimate priority work a career uh shooting average sporting accolades these things reputation power status if we set our hearts there, then, then, then we're heading for drift and dissatisfaction. Paul is saying, set your heart ultimately. You know, I think Matthew's gospel, seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first the things that are above. And then this other stuff is going to take care of itself. We'll find its rightful place. Now, you could go about setting your mind on things above, as some people do, and just trying to kind of, oh, I'm think, I wonder what that's like, and just sort of guess what it's like, and dream up, construct some kind of Jesus and the glory that's up there, and, and I wonder what those heavenly things look like. I hear it all the time. You go to a funeral, someone's passed away, and they begin, ah, oh, it's going to be so good. You'll be up there playing tennis or drinking beer or doing whatever. A karaoke made this remark when Shane Warne died that after a short time in penance, because, you know, Larry Kenny should only spend a little bit of time down there in purgatory, the main man, which I think is Jesus, will be waiting at the gates with a ciggy and a beer for him. That's the construction of what, of what he- things above, of heavenly things. Like it's just made up. You know, that, that we can kind of guess at things. Like if it was me, I'd be like, yeah, heaven. It's going to be a place where unlimited pig shooting's going on and fishing. And, 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 then, and then while I'm walking through the bush, there'll be a big widescreen TV with Carlton and Melbourne United winning premiership after premiership. How, how awesome. But no, that is not awesome because that is not God. That is not Jesus. 
It's lesser things. That's, that's good stuff, but it's not, th- th- these things make poor gods. They're the kind of things that enslave our hearts to abusive practices. It's stuff that, that shouldn't shape your life because it will be endlessly dissatisfying, particularly if you're a Carlton supporter, endlessly di- frustrating, always dissatisfying you. Or, or we could continue to humble ourselves and acknowledge that God has already defined himself, already told us what he's like and who he is, and we, and we find that in Scripture. All we need to know about God and all we need to know about Jesus and, and what, it's, what these heavenly things, these above things are like, are found and contained in Scripture. It's all there for us. So we don't need to guess. We know. So then we go, well, what warms our hearts with affection for this Jesus that we find in Scripture? And we need to begin to work it. Well, what kind of rhythms, what kind of practices can I put into my life that helps me seek out this Jesus that I find in Scripture uh, to help me set my heart on him there, that nurtures the spiritual vitality in my life that he's bringing to life? Find what, what takes the truths of Scripture and, and, and consciously stirs that up in your heart with affection for Jesus. So this should be things like, like prayer and rest and Sabbath. Like Stop doing. Stop trying to work for it and just rest and be in a way. Like put that laptop down or whatever it is that's distracting you. And, and even something that I'm actually, and this is part of why I'm, I'm taking a sabbatical in a few months' time, is to do exactly this, is to, is to set my heart and my mind again on, on the things of heaven and, and, and kind of break that cycle of just working for Jesus. Hopefully we come back healthy and we lock and load for another 10 years here. It could be the arts, the culture, music, movies, the hospitality, recreation, food, creativity. I showed you that photo last week of that massive storm cell out over the Dartmouth Dam that reminds me that Jesus created all things and he can hold them together. So surely he can hold me together. What is it that stirs up your affections to set your heart and mind on the Jesus that we find described to us in Scripture where we find that he is risen, that he is seated at the right hand of the Father? Rather than the things of earth what, that, that should you know, just fuel our affections, they should point us there to the one who made it all, sustains it all. Jesus is the source of power and knowledge for living the life that he has called us into. Set our heart and our mind, our affections there. So with our priorities on things, our heart uh, focused in an appropriate way on things above, with our minds being shaped uh, by Jesus. Paul now introduces um, these categories of vices, and there's two sets of five vices the works of the sinful nature that we are to disregard, to, 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 to put off, to put to death, or yeah, put off like a piece of old clothing that is like a, a filthy rag to borrow the language from Isaiah or to borrow the language from Paul in Romans and Ephesians. And so here now, Paul begins the first of what are over 30 imperatives that will follow now, like household codes that are going to come out of being, living in Christ. These are the symptoms of being raised with Christ. And the first list we find there in verse 5 is, is sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and greed, which has this modifier at the end of idolatry. 
It's a list of behaviors of the heart. That's what's being described here. Mainly sexual ones in which God's good design for sex is being destroyed and corrupted and abused, which is conveyed with the description of evil desires, like these things have become corrupt. The placing of self over others and God in the pursuit of these things. All things, including sex, are here to serve you is the thinking here. And when our hearts over-desire and misuse these things, then they tend to ruin relationships. They tend to ruin families. They tend to ruin marriages. And they set your heart on something other than God. Greed at the end of it is a bit like, I don't know if you can remember that little song that used to come on play school, one of these things is not like the other. Yeah, greed's kind of like that at the end of this list. It looks like it doesn't belong, but greed is also a, a position of the heart. Like, like Paul's going after the heart. It's a position in the heart uh, that sees a person willing to, to use other people, to abuse people, to get what their hearts desire. The over-desire to possess more stands in contrast with someone whose heart and mind is set on the things above where they find, you know, that's where we find a willingness to give and to serve others regardless of the cost because that's the nature and character of Christ. And the second list of verses there in, in eight, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk with the modifier of it's, it from your mouth is a description of the lists of behaviors of the tongue that these things can come and, and, and these behaviors can destroy communities like this one, can destroy friendships like the ones that exist in here. That's what Paul's, maybe this is what's going on in Colossae and that's why he's addressing it. Like these, these lists are specific for the environment. They're not, they're not you know, um, inert, determinative things down through history. Anger and rage are these ex- are these aggressive expressions of feelings towards others, like just a lack, just outbursts, while, while malice and slander take on a more subtle, spiteful undermining of people, you know, gossip, destroying people's reputations. And this, this, this obscene talk is not so much about the use of foul language as it is about speech that is used to harm people, destroy people. Speech that that takes their dignity and self-worth away from them. Christian speech should not be used to harm people. It should be always used to, to, to build people up. Like that's what you find in Christ, is it not? His words n- n- never harm a person. Like, oh man, he ripped into those Pharisees. Not to harm them, to expose grace to them. The point of these lists is not for you to run through them and check off whether or not you've engaged in any of these things and use them as some kind of in and out, but to realize that even within this Christian community, those who have been raised with Christ, if their hearts are not set on the things above, are not being transformed by Jesus, can drift back toward these things, can drift back toward the old self. Don Carson states, people don't drift towards holiness apart from grace-driven effort. 
People do not, not gravitate towards godliness and prayer and obedience to Scripture, faith and delight in the Lord. You have to seek these things. You have to set your mind on them, set your affections towards the things that are above and have them continuously shape your life rather than being shaped and ruled and overrun by the things below which can, can get hold of you and master you and ruin relationships. And Paul caps off this list of garments that he's saying you've got to get, get rid of, garments of the heart that must be put off because they're like filthy rags of the old self with, it, with another, um, another garment that's kind of a relational fabric in it, if you like, lying. Like, like put off lying. Which stands at odds with the gospel and its symptoms of selfless love, of caring for other people, of, 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 of treating people with dignity. When we can lie to each other, like if we can lie to each other, it reveals that, that we don't trust the person we're talking to. So we're going we're gonna to deceive, we're going to manipulate, we're going to make ourselves feel bigger or better in the story or whatever it is. We're not satisfied in who we are in Christ, so we're prepared to lie. And that just breaks down relationships, ruins things. It, it, it nurtures anger. Paul is saying if you've been raised with Christ and your affections are set on Christ, then more and more these old ways of life are being put off and put to death and are being renewed in this, this line of the knowledge and the image of your Creator. The vices, which Paul says should be treated like filthy rags and discarded, they have the, the effect of, of, of making the image of God in a person unrecognizable. So if you've been raised with Christ, then you should begin to start looking like him, yes? But if we keep putting on these old clothes, these old vices, then what we're doing is we are essentially lying about who Christ is. Like who can see the character of Jesus in those who misuse and abuse sex and sexuality? Who can see the character of Christ in, in, in those who try to destroy other people in malice and anger, selfish gain where they take advantage through greed and deceit? Those things must be put off of our lives because they have nothing to do with Jesus. I mean, that's the, is that not the, um, the, the bed root of the blasphemy of sin? That the image bearer that God created, God created all things, he created you, he created you, and he created you to image him. But then we go and, and, and we don't tell the story of Jesus, we tell the story of me. And I'm a sexual deviant and a murderer and a liar and these things. And so, and so looking at me with this stuff coming out, they go, oh, the God who made that, that that's must be what he's like. Can you, that's, that's the great blasphemy of, of, of living life the way we want to design it. That's, that's why it brings the wrath of God because those things that were created to image Jesus, to tell a story about Jesus, are telling a story about something profoundly wicked. Paul switches from vices to virtues. 
and says, uh, one's whole nature must be exchanged. Like these vices have got to go and these virtues have got to come and it's not just like to continue the, the clothing metaphor like adding an accessory to the you know to, to cover over some of these filthy rags it's a total exchange saying that you have taken off uh, these garments of the old self with their practices and you have put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of the creator so there's this total renewal that is in the image of your creator which is what we've been talking about Paul's language is of an ongoing renewal and transformation that there is uh, not something that we do but it is something that God does in us these these new threads these new clothes are the handiwork of God not our willpower not our self-actualization but rather from being raised in Christ in whom we have been and are being recreated and continuing to have our old nature reclothed. Paul says this new humanity owes all of its existence to Jesus. It just simply doesn't exist without him. So that means that the previous reasons that we found to create divisions have been nullified by our universal dependence and need of Jesus. The distinctions that cultures and classes and religious systems used to have that set people over and against each other have all evaporated and gone when a person becomes joined to Christ in this community. The gospel shatters this idea of uh, you know, us versus them mentality. It destroys the idea of entitlement and privilege It makes brothers and sisters out of natural-born enemies. And the only thing that really matters and the only thing that really counts and the only thing that you can stand on and have pride in is Jesus and being raised in Christ. Paul says there is no longer such racial divisions as Greek and Jew, religious divisions of circumcised and uncircumcised, geographical decisions such as barbarian. This is a group of people who, who come to Eritrea, um, Sudan, like at the, the, the north, north right-hand tip of Africa, basically the, the bottom of the world, the south end of the world, or, or the Scythian. They are way up near Russia, this group of people. In Christ, even, even this vast geographical location is, is, is reduced. And these people are, are not defined by where they live, but, but, but who they are living in. There is no grounds for the class of social bias, the division of slave and free. We are all products of grace. There is no more room for superiority or inferiority. This does not mean, though, that the rules of ethnicity and nature and geography disappear. They literally are still Jews and Gentiles and there's still Russia and Africa. These things don't go. They are just no longer valid to make a case for inclusion and exclusion. We are, we're, doing a, um, we are doing a partnership class after church today uh, and, that, and um, we're not going to ask things like, so can you tell me, uh, did your grandparents serve with Billy Graham? Have you been a Baptist for 6,442 years and this kind of stuff? We're going to ask, do you love Jesus? 
And, and, and is that love for Jesus shaping your life, or who you are, your, your service and, you, and your interaction here amongst your church? Does it cause you to love your church? Does, does, your, does your love for Jesus cause and shape your life? And if you can answer yes to that, then we just we sign you up. So if you're in a partnership class, I just read, can you say yes to that? We'll skip the class. We won't. We won't. We will. We will. I don't know. And nor does it mean that this, this, this loss of this breaking down, this, this new you know, inclusion, it doesn't mean that there is now nothing left to do in the church. As though becoming, as though being in Christ has magically transformed us all into perfect people. Where sexism and racism and classism, they just magically end. Like no one here has got any beef with anybody else, do they? We're all beautiful friends, Yeah. There is grace-powered relationships that need to be cultivated. This ministry that we've talked about, this ministry of one another, is enabled by our identity and acceptance from God because God has loved us regardless of our filthy rags and God is making us into something glorious. We are to clothe ourselves with His character This is now the practical work of seeking and setting our hearts and minds on things above. And he gives us another list, a list of virtues there that we are to be cultivating, that we are to be nurturing. But again, these things are not stuff that we, uh, you know, well up from inside of us. These are things that we find by setting our hearts and our minds and our affections on things above, on Christ. Compassionate hearts. That's a description of Jesus. They're trying to outdo each other and one-up each other. Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Got to rip. We, we're going for a long time. These, these relational motivations enable us to, to bear with one another. And when conflict comes, these are the, these are the relational um, glue that help us to seek peace, to find peace, to, to be able to forgive one another. Because this is how Jesus has moved towards us and continues to move towards us, continues shaping us. And so out of that, our life is now lived out with these virtues. Paul is simply saying with this, become what you are. A Jesus-focused person, someone who is in Christ. It's striking that Paul does not lay down a a set of rules, but more a description of what happens in an individual and in a community when their hearts and their minds seek and are set on things above, on, on a relationship with Jesus. It still requires on our part a willingness to to take part in the work. You know, this church is messy, complicated relationships. God is not picky on who he lets in here. This is a community of Carlton supporters and even Collingwood supporters, like they're in here. There are Liberal, Labor, and and, and even Greens voters in here. There are people who see the value in vaccinations, and then there are people who see the intrusion of vaccinations. But but these, these old divisions are not what define us anymore. Paul says to each and every one of them to put on the new life. These these lists of virtues that you have in Christ and to live them out in the present with each other. This is the kind of humanity that reveals to the world what God is like, what life in the kingdom of his son is like. To set our hearts on that is not escapism from the world, but the nitty gritty hard work of doing difficult, messy relationships in the world. 
Paul rounds up his list of traits that shape someone who is raised in Christ and the community that they are to exercise these relationships in. They are to be loving. I'm, go- oh, I'm getting to the end. Like the finishing touch on the outfit, love, love matches and, and brings all these virtues together in coordination, in a coordinated expression of who they are. And again, this is not mere sentimentality. It's a grace-driven willingness to give of yourself to others. This love is not something that we have to guess about. It's not something that we, oh, I wonder what this kind of love is that Paul's talking about. It has been made known in Jesus whose love was expressed for you in his willingness to die for you that you might be raised to life in him. As Paul writes in his letter to the Ephesians, God being rich in mercy because of that great love of which he loved us, even when you were dead in your trespasses, which is a way of saving even when you were hostile to with him, didn't like him, couldn't give a rip about him, made us alive together with Christ. Seek and set your heart and your mind on being shaped by that expression of love as you deal with all the crazy that you find in this room. Since we have been raised in Christ, that is our new identity. That is our new status. That should shape how we live. It should mean that the image and nature of Jesus is seen and celebrated in us. Let's pray. Yeah. Loving God, we just want to bring our hearts before you. We want to lift them toward you. Would our hearts and our minds be more and more set on knowing you, on being shaped by who you are, this, this list of virtues of compassion, of love, of kindness, of forgiveness, that as we spend time with you in prayer, as, as we spend time uh, with you sitting down at the beach watching a sunset, whatever it is that warms our hearts with affection for you, would, would, would we allow that to be shaping us with joy and delight that then we would live out this life amongst each other and to a watching world so that the person of Jesus would be seen and celebrated and that it would, that it would draw people toward you. Uh, This is our prayer, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.